Welcome to the Compliance Time, AML and Financial Crime Podcast. Here, you can learn from compliance experts, enthusiasts and creators who are contributing to the fast-moving and dynamic field of financial compliance. Hello everyone and welcome to Compliance Time. Guest of the podcast in episode 22 is Elliot Turner. Elliot is a compliance professional based in South Africa with a passion for wildlife and the natural world. He has spent the last 13 years guiding, advising and supporting top-tier firms in the banking, investment management and fintech industries. As an outsourcing and oversight specialist, he has worked in various countries including the UK, Ireland, South Africa, Tanzania, Uganda and Mozambique. His passion for wildlife and the natural world has given him the opportunity to help raise awareness of the illegal wildlife trade IWT, which has included putting together a recent webinar series entitled Wildlife Crime is a Financial Crime with Navigate Compliance and the International Compliance Association ICA. In this episode, we discuss the webinar series and international wildlife trade as an issue, including red flag statistics, prominent teams, and why it will take a network to defeat the network. We also discuss how financial compliance professionals can help to deter and disrupt wildlife crimes. The good news is that everyone can play a part to ensure the natural world does not just survive, it prospers. Join the revolution. But before that, let's hear from Elliot. Hello, Elliot, and welcome to Compliance Time. I am very happy to host today our conversation on wildlife trafficking, and I hope that um, people will find it very interesting because you are sharing and making such um, great things in that area. Well, um, thank you, firstly, Denitza, uh, for, for inviting me on to the Compliance Time podcast. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to discussing this further today. Yeah, me too. So let's start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your career in compliance. Okay, sure. So I think um, if anyone anyone kind of asks me about myself and, and my career, <clears throat> especially lately, I always tell them that my, my trade is compliance and, and my passion is the natural world and, and the great outdoors, which is, uh, which is my happy place. And I think I, um, I really stumbled on compliance as a career. It wasn't sort of essentially planned. I, uh, I studied finance at university. Um, I did look at corporate social responsibility and shareholder value, uh, which is sort of a linked, a linked kind of subject. And it was an area I wanted to work in and I wanted to actually become a trader or a research analyst. And then straight after uni, I went traveling. I Randomly trained to be an expedition leader in a, in a rainforest reserve in Tanzania. Uh, spent time in Madagascar doing some voluntary work. And then I found myself back in, back in the UK and having to pay back my student loan. So I started to apply for jobs. Um, what I was hoping for wasn't quite successful. And then one day my dad, who is now retired, who worked in compliance, suggested, why don't, why don't you have a look at compliance? And I did. And I got my first job at the Royal Bank of Scotland, working in compliance, and I've, I've never looked back from there. I have um, 13 years' experience across multiple industries, banking, asset management, fintech, in multiple countries, which has been great, working with people and getting lots of perspectives, the UK and Ireland, the US, multiple African countries. I mean, I, know, I now live in South Africa, 
Um, I've worked in advisory and monitoring across many different typologies of compliance, from thin crime, which I know a lot of your speakers focus on, trade surveillance, working on trading floors, uh, conduct, treating customers fairly, culture, data privacy, outsourcing, you name it, I may well have looked at it over the last 13 years. So I think you can definitely say I'm a generalist, um, but my most recent focus is the topic of today around wildlife crime and how it's linked to compliance. And this is an area that um, it's a learning journey for me right now, but it's an area that I'd like to make the switch from being a generalist to a specialist. That's great. And um, can you tell us a little bit more about your role right now? What, what do you do? So right now, <clears throat> I've mostly been working with a local consulting firm called Navigate Compliance. And Navigate focuses on training and consulting. So right now, we've been building out a training platform, which we want to roll out to the African kind of continent and making affordable learning accessible to, to everyone. Quite often, it's not, sadly, uh, yeah. in terms of its affordability and so on. Everyone wants to be at that kind of global standard. So we want to try and put that out there to, to allow people to, to achieve that. And as well as that, Navigate focuses on, on consulting work. So you, you'll find me consulting for various financial institutions across, across different sectors. I really, truly also believe that learning should be free, uh, at least for the, the people, like the organizations, they, they can pay. But I think that for individuals who want to learn, um, there should be many free resources, good quality resources. Um, and uh, we should make a separate episode on CSR and compliance, uh, corporate social responsibility, because my master thesis is on um, impact investing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, we can, dis but, but this in a separate note, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I would love to do that. <laughs> sure, we can, we can link it somehow. I, I always thought that they're related, but I don't know. Um, haven't really researched the uh, correlation. Um, <laughs> no, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of links. Um, so ESG, when you speak about ESG nowadays, there, there are potential kind of uh, segues into IWT where you focus on um, how various different companies, talking about impact investing and mandates, uh, are investing into various sectors and individual companies. Well, you might find that there are certain pharmaceutical companies, for example, whose products are made from um, <clears throat> illegal wildlife products, which are illegally traded and illegally sourced. So pangolin scales, for example, could be part of like traditional Chinese, uh, the ancient medicine. Um, so it would be something that you would want to kind of encourage that it is not mandated. So there, there's definitely, there definitely is a correlation there, um, something to, to look into. <laughs> yeah, well, we should chat about that um, on the next episode. Um, <laughs> but you mentioned also Navigate Compliance, and I just wanted to ask about the recent webinar that were you organized or you worked on that uh, wildlife crime is financial crime? 
Yes, so um, that was a that was such a, a a real privilege to be able to put that together. It was very very humbling, um, and I can honestly say I think that was the highlight of my career: uh, coordinating, putting it together, getting to speak to all the different speakers. It was it was so great. Um, it was actually a mini conference, I think. So it was a, it was a four day event spread over two two weeks, twenty six speakers from from around the world from multiple disciplines, all with that com- common purpose, that common goal. So we had speakers from conservation organisations, anti-poaching, law enforcement, NGOs, multiple, tech providers, legal and compliance, regulators, tourism providers, <clears throat> customs officials, policy makers, and, and a think tank. So we, we basically had everyone there you can think of um, and it was designed in such a way to try and provide collective insight because having, having done some research around it and trying to design this this particular event um, this is what I felt that the the purpose should be to to have collective insight to, to benefit from collective insight to making an event that was open to the public so there are many events available not all are public and open, quite a few are closed for good reason, the sensitive nature of what's being discussed. But we wanted to try and open open it up to a wider, a wider audience. Um, and as you say, one of the focus points was the link between compliance and IWT, hence the title, Wildlife Crime is, is Financial Crime. Uh, can you just please say what is IWT, just to make sure that everyone is um, on the same page with abbreviations? So <laughs> no, absolutely. Sorry, uh, I'm, I'm throwing out a lot of acronyms already. I'll, I'll stop that. Uh, so <laughs> IWT, uh, basically stands for illegal wildlife trade. So <clears throat> although it does say wildlife, many definitions expand it to talk about um, f- uh, fauna, so a- animals essentially, and flora. So trees, plants, a full, a full spectrum. So when you speak of IWT, you can be speaking collectively of um, wildlife, uh, things like illegal logging, and some even expand to sort of exploitation of natural resources. So it's, it can be quite a big and broad definition. That's great. Thank you for clarifying. And how did you come up with the idea for that webinar? I mean, for for uh, wildlife is a crime. No, yeah, sure. No, great question. So I think. Um, for me, it was almost like in three parts. Um, it was kind of like the catalyst or the driver behind it. And um, for me, unfortunately, I became quite became quite sick, um, and I'm I'm fit and healthy now. Uh, but I had to have a couple of operations at the time, and um, gives you a lot of time to think. And I decided that I wanted to try and seek something which had purpose, like uh, personal purpose to it and um, I spent a lot of time thinking about sort of I think you could refer to it as environmental crises and there are many of them that we're facing now and you look at the relationship between uh, human beings and the environment I think it's it's one which is is certainly damaged um, and I realized I wanted to play a part in the fight against those injustices if you will um, and then I spoke with a friend of mine called Simon Harry from a company called Play Nicely. Um, 
and his guidance really kind of gave me clarity and focus and, and, a, and a bit of a kick to, to go out there and, and do something which meant something to me. I then spoke to Navigate Compliance and the founder, Sholin Satu, and we in turn approached the International Compliance Association. And all of a sudden, this, this kind of idea began. And then from there, by speaking to Navigate and the ICA, we had a platform. And then the third step was, okay, well, how are we going to do this? So, so based, based on all my research um, and, and the various kind of papers and articles that I read and the different events that have happened, we wanted to try and, or I wanted to try and do something different and approach it from a different angle. So one of the kind of papers, which I think a lot of compliance professionals will be aware of, was one that the Financial Action Task Force released around illegal wildlife trade or IWT. And for me, it raised um, three, three quite clear issues. One, which is uh, a lack of understanding in terms of following the money, which, you know, fin crime AML professionals, that's their bread and butter. Like they, they know how to investigate. <clears throat> the second was a, a lack of connectedness between public and private organisations. So sometimes you'll, you'll hear another acronym or see another acronym, which is PPP, which is the public-private partnerships and how, say, government organisations and agencies can work with um, banks and other organisations in the private financial sector. <clears throat> and then there was a, a lack of, and there's a lack of kind of importance assigned to this as a risk. But this FATF paper uh, released by the Financial Action Task Force really raised, raised the bar there. It was fantastic. All of a sudden, <clears throat> financial organisations globally were like, wow, okay, how do we address this? Because it's come from, from the Financial Action Task Force. And there are many other papers. So reading through, you realise that um, it's not something that's done. The solution is not something that can be achieved in isolation. So it's not about thinking individually. It's more about thinking collectively and, and differently because maybe past solutions haven't, proposed solutions haven't, haven't worked. So, so how, how do we do this? So then the idea kind of came that, okay, I'm going to bring all the parties together. And that's, that's kind of how it happened. And then all of a sudden I'd, I'd contact speakers and I speak to one person and the next. And after a while, we were even contacted by, by people within all these different sectors to say, can, can we speak at your event? Like we, we would love yeah. to speak. We think it's, it's, it's a really good vehicle for raising awareness. And in a nutshell, that's kind of how, how it happened. That's really awesome. And um, if someone has missed it and still wants to take a look on the series, are they available? And if yes, where? <laughs> Great question. They, they, are, they are available, Denitza. And um, I would be happy to share the links um, with you to, to post. And I can do the same. And if... Anyone wants to contact me after listening to the podcast for for links to the to the four pod uh, the four webinars? Sorry, then they're more than welcome to do so. Awesome! I'll I'll for sure include them in the show notes and um, yeah, on the post when we when we are sharing that. 
But of course, uh, your LinkedIn will also be included there. <laughs> okay. And um, what are some of the um, key learning points from the webinar series that um, for you was something that you really learned and you found the most interesting? So there were, <clears throat> there were, there were many, um, but I think um, the biggest learning I got out of this was just how many people are involved and the fact that um, one, of our, one of our speakers at the event, um, our final speaker on the last day, Sheldon Jordan, he spoke about the fact that it will take a network to, to defeat a network. So, you know, when you're dealing with highly sophisticated criminal syndicates, which, which have so many layers and so many actors to them, how, how do you address that? individually like we were saying just now you you can't really you can take it so far you can try and disrupt uh, dismantle but uh, I don't think you're going to end anything there it's, it's how everyone works together which is sort of some of the initial points raised in the paper provided by the financial action task force um, I think that was my biggest kind of learning that any any solution really needs to be a collective one and the, the good guys, if you will, um, need to kind of clarify how they can best work together to, to achieve this effectively, how, how networks can be built, how task forces can be built, which I'm sure we'll talk about more today, um, and how systems can be built to, to address this, how we can think innovatively, and, and how anyone really can do that. Anyone can be involved. You don't necessarily have to be a conservationist um, working for an NGO to contribute. And I, I think that's, that's one of the biggest learning points. Um, there are many kind of highlights to, to, to the whole series. And I think one of the really ones that really took me back were how so many people really care about this is, is an issue and how many people want to do something to help. And that is something that can happen. Um, and I think compliance professionals can have a really big part to play. That's, that's great. I really like the quote, it takes a network to take down a network. Uh, that, that, that's really awesome. And um, I, I suppose during the webinars, you were discussing also red flags that are typical for the wildlife crimes and um, maybe for financial crime professionals. Can you please share some of those? How they can identify that the money are linked to wildlife? Of course, of course. <clears throat> so I think um, a lot of the red flag indicators within the legal wildlife trade are, are very similar to, to typical red flags that, that you would see on a daily basis in terms of something being unusual or untoward. And I think um, a really great resource to, to have a look at to kind of gain further information around this is the ACAMS certificate, which is, which is readily available to anyone. It's free. And in there, quite a lot of information, well, 
there's, 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 there's some really good information around this. Um, so some of the things that they discuss are around high-risk industries that have potential links. And they'll look at the supply chain and they'll look at the transport chain. So where um, Rhino Vaughan is, is sourced. So if we say South Africa, uh, there's the source country and then it's going to its destination country, which more often than not is somewhere in the Far East, um, certainly over the last few years, whether that be China, Vietnam, Laos, that's quite a common pathway. And then you also have your source destination and your um, kind of uh, whilst, whilst the goods are in, in transport. So you've got those three elements. So red flags can be built around this. What are you looking for? So in terms of industries, <clears throat> you might look at uh, captive breeding farms. You might look at game lodges and safari parks, import and export companies, logging companies, <clears throat> companies that sell low-value, high-bulk agricultural products. So in East Africa, something which has been highlighted is tea. Hmm. It's, it's a front company. It's, it's essentially you know, sort of the co-mingling of funds and legitimizing something that is illegitimate. Um, shell companies are often used too. And there uh, are even, you know, uh, papers that suggest that different money laundering techniques are used for different IWT products. So if, if you're moving rhino horn or pangolin scales um, or you're moving um, animal hides, there are various techniques that are used, and I think it really depends on how sophisticated the criminal gangs are associated to that activity. Mm -hmm. Some even use the term professional launderers, and um, once they did an analysis of of what was undertaken, they questioned, you know, is it is this a professional launderer or is this sort of done in house? If you can term it like that, so there's there's question marks around what's being done. And then moving away from source countries where you're going to your destination countries, you, you might look at, um, in terms of industry, like uh, medicine producers, pet stores and zoos, leather goods importers, and even arts, crafts and antiques dealers. Oh, wow. Who often kind of deal with um, uh, ivory products. Because that's what, that's, that's what kind of happens. They get turned into bowls and trinkets and... Um, and various ornaments. So it's, it's trying to remove those products from, from the market. And then um, when you look at the supply chain in between, I think your main kind of red flags will always be kind of import and export providers and transport and logistic companies because products need to be moved. They need to get from source to destination. So how, how does that happen? Um, and a lot of people talk about bribery and corruption in between. And mm -hmm. I think that that is widely recognised as the fuel, which is, which is very disappointing. Um, and then sort of building out in terms of red flags, you can also have a look at sort of the financial transactions, which I think would be more typical in terms of analysis. So this is where <clears throat> it kind of aligns itself more to typical AML red flags. So you have inconsistent account activity against the client's profile. Um, use of multi-country country accounts, heavy use of cash. Mm -hmm. So then you can be linked to 
PEPs, you know, politically exposed persons who are receiving bribe payments to, to basically enable the whole trade to happen in the first place. There, there are so many different things you can look at, unexplained large amounts from, from countries in high-risk jurisdictions. High-risk jurisdictions to start with, but where's it going? Um, quite often you can see payments going to custom clearance companies. So again, it's, it's all around the movement of products. But if we combine like these red flags with, with solid KYC, which, which happens on a daily basis, um, and we look at you know the data that has been held on file with high-risk client profiles, geographies, and industries, it's it's a powerful tool to identify suspicious transactions. And that in turn would lead to suspicious reporting, which which can only help kind of stifle and and, and for action to be taken by law enforcement further down the line. That's great. Um, those are really, really useful uh, tips, like looking at the supply chain, looking at uh, import and export companies, because as you said, these things need to move somehow. And um, yeah, likely they're using such services as opposed to just carrying them on their backs, I guess, the, the traffickers. Exactly. Um, You'd be surprised the kind of levels of thought that, that goes into to moving products. But I think another point to note um, in terms of in kind of internal watch lists and, and things like that, which would all be associated to the red flags, is how, how crimes, illicit activity can converge. So when you talk about wildlife trafficking, you can talk about that hand in hand with, with drugs trafficking, with arms trafficking, yeah. with human trafficking. So it's, it's, as always, it's, it's about putting the pieces together um, in terms of a thought investigation and when it comes to reporting of suspicions having having a full report together and I think I remember listening to a previous podcast you had with Jeffrey Robinson and he was talking about how you know the importance of a complete and accurate suspicious activity report and that that applies here too just just like anything else and it's considering all those links but there are um, there are a couple of resources that I would recommend people can read if, if they're interested in, in building out further information. So there's, there is the ACAMS certificate, which is free, which, which provides that overview for you. And it's a really great overview to start with. There's also the Financial Action Task Force paper on IWT. And there's another paper that covers typologies from, and this is quite a long typology um, itself, acronym, Assam Lake which stands for the Eastern and Southern Africa Anti-Money Laundering Group. Bit of a mouthful. Uh, listeners might want to pause and play that one back. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will not repeat it because I don't, I don't think I can. Um, <laughs> so. It took me a while to learn it. But yeah, E-S-A-A-M-L-G. <laughs> Google that. Um, and then typologies around IWT. It's also a very interesting paper which can, which can build that that knowledge base for anyone interested. 
That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. And you just briefly mentioned that um, we can be shocked by some of the creativity in moving products. Or um, in, So if you can please share some cases that you have from your practice and from your experience of uh, wildlife trafficking, which you found really something shocking or something that's really um, exemplifying the issue um, with the whole problem, the issue. Sure, sure. Well, I think um, on a personal level, I'm kind of continually shocked in, in the way in which things happen and how they happen, how they continue to happen. And um, I think maybe some of the best ways for me to describe this, uh, to provide a bit of an overview on some of the statistics and sort of general themes that, that come through. So one <clears throat> is that... Uh, we spoke about IWT earlier being referred to as flora and fauna crime. So it includes wildlife, it includes trees, forestry, and therefore it includes things like illegal logging and illegal fishing. And what I wanted to kind of point out statistically, uh, some of the kind of estimated revenues that these illegal activities generate. So I think it's widely publicized. It's, IWT is estimated as being the fourth largest industry in terms of criminal activity. And they estimate that on an annual basis between seven and 23 billion US dollars are, are generated. But it gets, it gets kind of more shocking as you go along. You can include forestry and fishing when we think of a broader definition and therefore the estimate then goes up between 91 billion and 258 billion US dollars per year. And in actual fact, the World Bank last year estimated that as a whole, these illegal activities could be generating anywhere between one and two trillion US dollars. So it's, it's, it's quite um, flabbergasting what is actually happening and how these criminals are, are profiting. And if you were to go even further and estimate revenues when you link the convergent crimes, drugs trafficking, arms trafficking, human trafficking, it's, it's staggering. Um, and it's not, it's not standalone, which I think is, is uh, one of the shocking things that, that straight away comes out when you start looking at it. It's the fact that criminal syndicates are trying to move their products, if you will, um, and that's what they're interested in. There's, there's no real kind of moral compass whatsoever here. So it could be IWT, it could be human trafficking, it could be arms trafficking, drugs trafficking, all serious organised crime. And then in terms of themes, I think the most shocking to me is how this happens. And we touched on it earlier. It's corruption. That corruption is the fuel that enables all these things to happen. Why is it happening? Um, various organisations and government organisations, you, you see like the, the impact and the issue of politically exposed persons. It's, it's quite shocking. So when we talk about following the money, we shouldn't just be fo talk, uh, focusing on following the money. We should also focus on, on corruption because arguably if you remove corruption and you nullify that, you're going to have a huge impact on 
on deterring and kind of ending wildlife crime as an issue. And there's a very interesting paper, again, that I'll make reference to, uh, written by WWF and Rusi, mm-hmm. which focuses on corruption as an issue, which, again, I think would be very interesting for, for any listener who's interested to have a look at. Yeah, this will um, be included too. <laughs> okay, great. And then um, there, there are a couple of other themes that I quickly touch on. So one for me is, is, is twofold. Um, the first is what's often referred to as a tipping point. And that's basically where you take a species, call it a rhino right now for our purposes of our discussion, and the number of deaths are outnumbering the number of births. Oh. And that, that's sadly, that's becoming a reality with a, with a number of species, which I find extremely shocking. And then... Taking this one point further, the WWF released a biodiversity report this year, which outlined the loss of biodiversity across species globally since 1970 at 68%. So 68% of biodiversity over the last, what, like 50 years has, has dropped by 68%. And if we align that to the human population, it would be like the populations of the US, China, India, are more disappearing, hmm. which again is, is quite shocking, but that's the impact that um, we are having. And because this is so multifaceted, there's, there's multiple impacts. And another huge one, especially in Africa, across many African countries, is tourism or ecotourism, which relies upon holidaymakers coming from overseas to visit and go to the national parks and, and view wildlife. Well, unfortunately, if, if there is no wildlife, it's quite likely that there'll be no tourists. And if there are no tourists and holidaymakers coming to visit, then there are going to be job losses, which are kind of off, off the scale, really. Um, poverty is, is another kind of um, theme. So... That's what drives people, poachers, quite often in poor communities to commit these acts. Exactly. And especially, and especially because um, I think in some countries, wildlife trafficking, or not only wildlife, but as you said, IWT, uh, is um, low risk and very high reward uh, for these poachers. Like, if they get caught, they may go... To to prison or they can bribe someone not to go there I suppose uh, and run away so that's why I think they're risking to do that their risk is lower than what they'll get in reward that's, that's absolutely true and that's that happens on, on many occasions and so there's, there's a number of initiatives Just trying to look at this further and this kind of go back, goes back to the original point of how important is this risk seen as, as being? So how, how is it addressed? Like if there's no repercussions for committing a criminal act and there's, there's no, nothing stopping the individual from doing it as such, then that, that it's going to happen. And if you throw poverty in the mix where people are very poor and they, they really need an income to support themselves or their family, then that kind of overrides 
everything else. Um, and again, there's a, there's a very interesting paper for any of the listeners who, who do want to kind of go into more detail around that. And it was produced by an NGO called Traffic. And essentially, it's a collection of interviews with convicted offenders in South Africa who've, who've been, um, who've been uh, basically charged with IWT offences, whether that be poaching or otherwise. And they've, they've kind of opened up to what they did, why they did it, and so on. And it's, it's, it's very interesting to, 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 to read. So I really would recommend that. That's great. Thank you for the recommendation. I will try to take a look uh, as well because I haven't um, seen these. My pleasure. And then if, um, if I may, there's, there is one particular case um, of a particular species, which, which I do find very shocking. And it's, it's got strong links to the financial crime world. And it's about a creature called a, a vaquita, which is basically a small, a very small porpoise, which is found in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And essentially, it's, it's, for want of a better word, it's almost been collateral damage because it's caught in nets. And these nets are trying to catch a fish called a tobaita. And this fish is in high demand with certain communities um, in, the, in the Far East for its bladder. So <clears throat> they want to use the fish's bladder for medicinal purposes or, or otherwise. So they catch these fish illegally off the Mexican coast using the nets. This small porpoise called a vaquita gets caught in those nets. And when I was first told what the estimated number of vaquita left in the wild were, I was quite shocked because I thought I misheard the person telling me. So <clears throat> it varies, but they told me six. So I was like, oh, do you mean 6,000? And they're like, no, it's six. Like, 600? No, no, 16. They're like, no, no, six. And there, there are six creatures left, they estimate. <gasps> oh, no. Because they've been caught in these nets. And there's some fantastic initiatives around this. Um, NGO is doing some great work. One is called the Earthly International. We've spent years looking into to this as an issue. And uh, very recently, there were arrests made because the Mexican government had got themselves involved in this issue and they'd used the intelligence provided by Earth League International to take action, which is a really good example of a public-private partnership working well. But unfortunately, what it's probably doing is, is saving a bit of time it's kind of hitting the pause button. It's not quite the, the answer to the issue. And the financial crime link here is that Mexican cartels are facilitating this illegal fishing. Oof. So, and that's linked. That's where the drugs trafficking and the human trafficking and everything else comes in because they, they're moving products over the Mexican border quite often into the, the US or maybe straight to, to the Far East and they're mixing everything together. Um, and the Vaquita has done nothing wrong other than live its life, and it's, it's been hugely impacting. So I find that hugely, hugely shocking that that, that has happened. And um, 
I hope that all the fantastic organizations involved can help that not happen to help that uh, the vaquita the don't go become another extinct species. So yeah. that's really the most shocking example I can, I can think of to, to, to give the listeners. Wow, it's, it is shocking that the number six, only six have left. Um, yeah, and speaking about Mexican cartels, we, we were watching some documentary on TV um, that sometimes you don't think about the impact that all this organized crime have on the normal community, like on the normal life of people and um, how bad it looks for the whole country and how they are devastating the society in general uh, in such places. But That's it's... Absolutely true. Yeah. Unfortunately, I cannot reference this documentary because it, we watched it on TV and I missed the title in the beginning. So. No, that's okay. But no, you're, you're, you're absolutely spot on. I mean, um, in Mexico, it impacts the local fishing industries because <clears throat> they might be chased away if they're trying to do something in, in the right fashion. Um, or they're going out and cutting nets. They're cutting nets because there's a government initiative to try and remove them, to protect the vaquita and to try and disrupt what the cartel, cartels sorry, are, are doing. Yeah. They become collateral damage themselves, which is, which is very sad. But uh, the positive news is that um, there have been arrests made and there has been some progress made. So long may that continue. Yeah, that, that, that's the, the good news. And um, you mentioned that uh, financial and compliance analysts uh, can have impact on um, uh, stopping and preventing uh, wildlife crimes to happen. How do you see their role? Just um, briefly to explain how, how do you think they can help? Uh, we can help, actually. No, exactly. How we can help. Exactly. And this is what's... Um, this is one of the things that really motivated me and has kind of brought me to where, to where I am today um, in terms of my involvement. Compliance professionals, fraud professionals, legal professionals, risk professionals, that whole industry have some really vital skills. And when we talk about public-private partnerships, they absolutely must get themselves involved. I, I firmly believe that it could only be a matter of time where we possibly read a headline where a financial institution didn't have the appropriate controls in place to prevent these activities from happening. Mm -hmm. And the way that um, legislation is being built out is, is making it an obligation. So I believe uh, within the EU, the sixth money laundering directive will be making reference to wildlife trafficking and, and encouraging organizations to, to put the appropriate measures in place. Um, the FATF paper does the same. It's a blueprint and there are many others. So how do, how do compliance professionals and everyone else get involved? How do they use their skills? As we kind of mentioned earlier <clears throat> within AML, following the money, compliance professionals in, in that context that said bread and butter, this is what they're adept at. So <clears throat> an NGO, for example, might gather all this financial intelligence 
They don't know what to do with it. They've got all these bank statements, like what's happening here? Like I can't make head nor tail of it, but I know it's useful. I know we can use it, but we can't decipher what we've got in front of us. <laughs> so if we build out public-private partnerships in such a way that an NGO could work potentially with, with a bank or, or a consulting firm or whomever with a common goal in place, someone within that organisation could do that. They could look through financial statements and identify unusual transactions and unusual patterns quickly in terms of forensics. Um, you can raise awareness. This is vitally important that the message is spread, that more and more people know what is happening and how it's being impacting the environment for a long time. Because the main thing is here, this isn't something that has just happened. It's been happening for a long time. Um, so I think that must be recognised and, and we must try to do all we can to, to end that. So another area in which <clears throat> compliance professionals can help is in terms of sharing information. So suspicious activity reports will know are vital within AML. Yeah. If you know you identify the red flags correctly, use data and intelligence correctly, <clears throat> do things in a timely and correct manner, then this intelligence itself can be shared with, with regulators, with law enforcement, and so on and so forth, and, and be used and have real value. And one of the other areas I think that compliance professionals can kind of get involved, whether that's internally or externally, is to form working groups. So in South Africa, I'm very sorry, I'm going to explain it, but there's another acronym coming up. <laughs> there's a group for short called SAMLIT which is a South African anti-money laundering integrated task force. So a lot of the big banks in South Africa, your, your ABSA, your Investec, are members of this group, and they've decided to expand their typologies to include IWT. So they say, well, how do we, how do we build initiatives around this? We want a working group. And it's being run by compliance professionals. <clears throat> Outside of that, there's a huge group as well, a huge task force called United for Wildlife. And this is backed by Prince William, uh, who's helped by William Hague. And there are two task forces which are designed to disrupt some wildlife trafficking. Uh, one is the financial task force and the other is the transport task force. Mm -hmm. And on the financial side, this is where all the banks, largely retail banks, come into play. And they become members. They, they commit <clears throat> to a number of different um, objectives, and they essentially, they share typologies, they share information, and they work together in order to try and be as disruptive as, as they can. So there's lots, there's lots that um, compliance professionals can do. That's the good news. <laughs> That's great. Thank you for sharing those. I will uh, try to track them down on Google and include also um, within the notes how to join or just to for awareness um, um you... absolutely i just sorry uh, Denise, i just oh. wanted to add um with with united for wildlife so <clears throat> in the last kind of couple of months um i've started to work with a few different organizations outside of navigate more in a 
on a voluntary and part-time basis, one of which is United for Wildlife. So <clears throat> if anyone from a financial organization who's listening, who is interested in becoming a member of the task force, in fact, not just financial, but transport too, so that would be more your kind of shipping and, and airline companies and so on, then by all means, <clears throat> please contact me and we can kind of get wheels in motion in terms of you joining the task force. I know you'd be most welcome. That's really awesome. Thank you for sharing. And uh, I, I hope you uh, get some contacts on that because these are some very great initiatives. We mentioned a lot of resources throughout the um, throughout our discussion, as well as uh, some certificate courses. But is there anything else that you would like to add before we go to the final questions? <laughs> so, um, yeah, like we mentioned earlier, there's the ACAM certificate, which is excellent. Um, it was it involved a lot of different individuals from different organisations, whom I now know. Um, the lead author, a lady called Amanda Gore, who has just set up her own organization called the Center for Global Advancement, was largely involved in the content around that. She's just excellent, as was everyone else. So I think it was a really great initiative from ACAMS because professional bodies can also have a really big part to play in this. They, they educate and they raise awareness. So I think kudos to them for, for doing that. There's one other certificate on the market at the moment uh, through an organization called Manchester CF. And there's a wildlife crime course. Uh, it's a bit more detailed. It goes, it draws down to the specifics a little more. Um, it is a paid for course. So I believe at the moment it's around 580 Canadian dollars. And then over and above that, there are a few things I recommend very quickly. One would be attending webinars. So whole COVID situation we're in at the moment. Webinars are pretty popular right now. There are many out there and there's some really outstanding and insightful speakers globally from different industries. So it's great to get different perspectives, different angles and learn from that. Um, expand your network on LinkedIn. If it's an area that you want to kind of look at and grow out into, then touch base with people who are working in, in those sectors. And then Last but not least is um, joining an initiative because there's some really great ones out there like being run by members of the public um, who, who want to just have that impact. Uh, so whether they're in compliance or legal or tech or whatever it may be, there's, there's lots out there. So there are so many different ways in which um, we can do it. And then last but not least, uh, you mentioned watching the documentary a little earlier. There, there are a few great ones out there. There They're really insightful. Um, they're quite upsetting in places, some of them, um, but I still would recommend watching them. So there's one called The Ivory Game. There's another called The Sea of Shadows, which actually is, is about the Vikita. Um, I believe The Ivory Game is available in networks, at, at Netflix, rather. Um, there's one called Stroop, which is S-T-R-O-O-P, which focuses on rhinos. And there's another one on Netflix called Virunga, which is about basically um, the civil war at the time and the impact it had on poaching and in particular the gorilla population and others 
around lake and that's that's very insightful so i recommend all of those things and um if you're passionate about it you'll you'll find a way to to keep growing Thank you. And um, nice list of Netflix and not only documentaries. Um, I can binge watch this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, my final questions are usually about the future. So yeah. let's, let's see what, in your view, um, should be done so that we can put more pressure onto wildlife crimes. Absolutely. So <clears throat> I really do think there, there, there certainly is a light, there is hope um, in, in this battle um, that so many people are involved in. There's, there's definitely opportunities to, to strengthen in various places. So I think um, if you were to speak to, to most specialists, they talk about a goal as, as removing demand for products and removing profit. Quite often, you know, money money drives a lot of these activities, right? Um, and to your point, <clears throat> it is at best if if you can't kind of nullify the previous point, it is at best to to make this activity something which is low reward and, and high risk. And there are a few really great initiatives um, out there at the moment which which are really designed. To do that, so there's United for Wildlife, which we we already discussed in terms of building that that network, that task those task forces. There's an initiative called the Global Initiative to End, <coughs> excuse me, to End Wildlife Crime, which is being driven by a gentleman called John Scanlon. Um, that's to address gaps in international law. So saying that the legal framework is not stringent enough in terms of um, really locking down on, on offences and, and making them criminal. Um, so people do have a jail sentence and it is becoming more severe. So their main objective is, amongst others, to add IWT as a fourth protocol under the UN Convention. And then there's another really interesting coalition, um, which is called the Coalition to End Wildlife Trafficking Online which was set up between WWF, Traffic, and IFAW. So three NGOs set this up, and they focus on social media and online platforms. Because, in fact, when you asked me earlier about, okay, what things do you find shocking? Well, one of the things that is shocking is things like Instagram, Snapchat are used to <clears throat> basically market and sell live animals. Oh, wow. Yeah. I thought that would be used for showcasing how horrible that is. Like it is too. Absolutely. I mean, um, a lot of organizations do use social media to push this forward. But at the same time, there, there is a market there where, where these things are being utilized. Uh, eBay, too, for, say, like ivory products, like in terms of like antiques and so on. So all these platforms are, <clears throat> are regularly screened and monitored through the coalition, which has essentially been built around a task force of companies who all commit to, to, to this, to, to screening. There's a number of commitments that they have to fulfill. So I think, um, you know, there's some really great things that are happening. 
And then in terms of everyone else, it's, it's largely around, I think, raising awareness, not buying affiliated products. And if, if, if there is a possibility, I truly believe that building up public-private partnerships and working together, that there's definitely an answer in there somewhere. That's great. Thank you very much. And just before finishing, um, we asked the same question on compliance time, and it's about the future. What would be your prediction for compliance and AML trends in the future? Oh, in the future, well, <clears throat> I certainly believe that wildlife crime is, is going to be a typology that, uh, that will come to the forefront and, and will need to be addressed. However, it is uh, in terms of building networks and building systems, I think that that's certainly something there. Um, and I think a focus on technology and using smart solutions is, is going to come to the forefront as well. When we talk about reg tech, that, that certainly is going to jump forwards, I believe. And there's, there's a lot of interesting solutions out there and um, they need to be utilized in some way to, to get that competitive advantage especially in AML, which has been a game of cat and mouse, really, mm -hmm. for a long time. So we want to we catch the mouse. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for um, being here with us today for uh, taking part in compliance time. And um, yeah, we'll talk about a new episode on CSR and impact investing then. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Denitza. I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking Thanks the time so to much. invite me. Thank you for listening to Compliance Time. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave us a review which will help others to find the podcast. Also, you can subscribe for email updates on our website cmpltime.com. And don't forget to check out our new blog. Thank you, till next week. <laughs>